Our sermon this morning is going to be looking at words recorded for us in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, beginning uh, at verse 10. It's a familiar story, I think, to many of us. It's the story of Daniel as he's thrown into the lion's den. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. My parents live in a a small town in, I think it would probably be considered northern Wisconsin, right on the, the western shore of Lake Michigan. It's an old town and one that has relied on not only shipping, but at times other uh, freight and things that are, are carried on Lake Michigan. So from the, the city or the town of Kiwani juts out into Lake Michigan a lighthouse. It's not working anymore, but if I, if I remember right, it was one of the first lighthouses in the United States that was fitted with the Fresno lens, which is able to extend the light of a lighthouse out even farther. It's not a, a, a magnificent and, and gigantic structure like perhaps you'd see in other places, you know, right, a, a tall stone structure. It's, it's rather small, I'd say modest. What's interesting to me is shortly after it was built, it was built on a, a, like a, a, a concrete pier that went out, but the pier was only a couple feet above the water level And so when storms came, storms would would blow water well over this pier. In winter, it would not only be snow and, and, and icy water that's coming over, but then it would get covered in snow and ice, making it nearly impossible to, to walk the 
600, 800 feet out to where the, the lighthouse is, is. So what they did is they built a, uh, an elevated walkway, 20 feet in the air, from shore all the way to the lighthouse, so that you could walk back and forth on a, an iron grate, I guess, in the middle of whatever storm or whatever weather that Lake Michigan was throwing at you, but you could get back and forth and carry supplies and, and whatever. If there's any picture in your mind of, of something being steadfast, a lighthouse is it, isn't it? Right? They're, they're exposed to the harshest, hardest elements, and they just sort of stand there, firmly fixed, most of the time, regardless of what is thrown at them. The word steadfast comes from an old English word, and I'm not sure I'm going to say the old English words right, but it's steda, which is a place, and faced, which means to fix firmly. Right? Steadfast, to fix firmly in place. That's, that's a lighthouse, isn't it? Like, they, they stick it in a place where it's going to do good, but then it's, it's stuck there, fixed firmly in place, and the builders understood that it was going to have to weather the worst of storms. And now we still see how they stand, even after they're no longer used, they, they stand there steadfast, fixed firmly in place. When you hear that word steadfast, and then you hear the words of that story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. Steadfast might not only apply to lighthouses, huh? You remember Daniel was an Israelite who, in the, uh, who had been taken to Babylon very early uh, in, in the, the attacks that Babylon carried out against Israel. They had started about 609, 610. Jerusalem wasn't destroyed until the 570s. So Israel had been subjected to a number of deportations where the the Babylonians would come and they'd carry off citizens until Jerusalem was finally destroyed. In those very first deportations, the Babylonians, they weren't dumb. They took all the best and the brightest. And, and began to instill in them and, and give them the best of Babylonian, a Babylonian education and training so that they could use them in the Babylonian government. And Daniel, along with, you think earlier in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? All of those were Israelites who had been carried off in some of those very first deportations. They were the, the smart, the best, the brightest of Israel. Now pressed into service into the Babylonian government. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, the Babylonians were no longer in control. The Medes and the Persian Empire, which was the next big empire that came onto the scene, were now in in control of, of a majority of the known world. And who do we find still active in the government? Daniel. Might have been 80 plus years old at this point. And you can imagine how some of the Persians and the Medes might have felt if now this 80-year-old foreigner is well-liked by the king and and, and very high up in the government. They, They look at Daniel and they see Daniel's life and they realize, well, we can get rid of this guy. 
And so they devise and come up with a plan where they present to the king of Persia a law that they would like him to enact. It's a really simple law. It just simply says, if anyone prays to any god or any other human other than you, king, we'll throw him into a lion's den. The king enacts the law. Daniel's no dummy. Right? Best, brightest. He knows exactly why this law was enacted. You might begin to wonder, what would a normal person do? He knows they're watching him. He knows that the law has been enacted by them for the expressed purpose of being able to eliminate him. And what does he do? He goes home like he always does. And he opens his window and he prays toward Jerusalem to his God, thanks God, asks God for help, just like he always does. That's a, that's a steadfast faith, isn't it? That is a faith that's, that's fixed firmly on the promises of God. Right? That's a faith that says, I'm not changing who I am and how I live. Instead, God's got me. In my mind, the first question I, I thought of and asked myself was, how in the world does Daniel get to that place where he does the exact same thing, not only every day, but the day that the law is enacted, he goes and continues to do exactly what he does. He doesn't even give the enemies the satisfaction of changing his behavior, like, I'll just keep the windows closed, or I'll do it in a different room and no one will see me. No, he does the exact same thing he always does. His witness to his enemies doesn't change. Where does a steadfast faith like that come from? Daniel knew the promises of God. Right? Perhaps in his mind, what the, the words that ran through his mind were ones that we sung just a few moments ago in Psalm 46. The Lord is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So he gets on his knees and he asks that ever-present help in trouble for help. Perhaps what runs through his minds are, are all the other times God had kept his promise to help his people. Right? You can think of all the different times God helped Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You can think of how God helped the, the people of Israel as he delivered them from slavery and split open the Red Sea so he could deliver them from the Egyptian army. Perhaps what was running through Daniel's mind were all the times God delivered David. All the different times God delivered his people through the judges. He had ringing in his ears the promises of God. And Daniel had such a, a confident trust in those promises that when trouble came into his life, nothing changed. When trouble came into Daniel's life, he did what he always did. When trouble came into Daniel's life, he turned to God for help. 
he kept going back to God with the promises God had given to him. Lord, help. Here's the situation. And nothing changed in Daniel's life. It's a steadfast faith we see repeated in Scripture often, huh? When, when believers, when they're confronted with trouble, they, they turn to their God for help. We see it in the Reformers, right? You can think of in the Diet of, of Worms, the, the meeting in the city of, of, of Germany called Worms, the entire Catholic Church was against Luther. And they said, retract what you've written. And Luther had a decision. He could retract what he had said, or he could become an outlaw, which basically meant anyone could kill him. Guess what he did? He asked for a little bit of time, and that night he did exactly what Daniel did. He turned to his God, and he prayed for help. In your life and in mine, trouble's going to come. It's not so much a matter of if it is going to occur in our life, but when. And, and not just trouble and hardship like we, we heard about Job the last six weeks, but trouble and hardship in the form of, of persecution. Right? You can look at, at what you and I believe about what the Bible says, and you very quickly realize it is at odds with much of what the world believes and says. The very fact that we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. That in an abortion, a human life is being murdered. Right? Or you could look at even more mundane things. The very fact that unless someone believes in Jesus, they're going to hell. Or you could look at our own life and how those beliefs begin to affect our life. And you could say, the very fact that I might prioritize worship and time spent in God's word over sports or recreation. The fact that I give up an extra five or ten minutes of sleep every day so that I can get up and read and study God's word. That's different, isn't it? And the more people know and see that in you, the more you become more and more like Daniel. And the world is going to look at you differently. The world is going to look at you differently because you are different. You look at things differently, and so the world is going to look at you differently. And it's not always going to be that kind, loving, well, we can all agree to disagree or try to get along or we're just going to ignore the differences. They're going to look at what you believe and say, you're backwards. You're unloving. And the list will go on and on. And the temptation is there, much like it was for Daniel, that when that kind of trouble comes in our life, to zip our lips, to change our life, to do what we do when it comes to our relationship with our God behind closed doors so that no one can see it and therefore will keep the trouble at arm's length or, or further. The pressure will be there. 
And my guess is you've already experienced it. To just be quiet. To change what you've been like and not be who you are as a child of God in order to save yourself the trouble. Or we can do what Daniel did. Who, when, tr- when trouble came, turned to his God, thanked God, and asked him for help. We can do what Luther did. And any number of reformers and believers in the church, right, when faced with trouble, they turned to God, they thanked God, and asked him for help. They did it because they trusted and knew God's promises. That when you ask God for help, what does God do? He delivers. Right? You can think of the the big promises God made in the Old Testament. Right? You you, you can think of how God promised, I'm going to send a, a Savior. And in time, God sent that Savior. In fact, in, in, at, right after Jesus' transfiguration, we're told Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. In other words, he was resolute. Right? He was faithful to the mission God had given to him. He was only months away from dying, and he could have done anything else. He had all power as the Son of God, and instead he sets his face and steadfastly walks not only to Jerusalem, but to a cross. You can think of our Savior as he's in the Garden of of Gethsemane, right? He he prays to our God, Lord, if there's any other way we can do it, let's do that. Because he knew all that was coming. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And God's will was for Jesus to endure all of that in our place. And so what does Jesus do after asking God for help? He gets up. And he goes to meet his betrayer and those who were with him who had come to arrest him. Our Savior is fixed firmly, I suppose steadfastly, to a cross. To pay for every last one of our failures. Every last one of those times our faith wilted in the face of trouble. Every last one of those times, we were less than steadfast. And he takes all of those sins and he puts it on his shoulders. And then when faced with God's anger over all sin, when faced with the agony of of being separated from God and his love, hell itself, he doesn't call down legions of angels to save himself. He he doesn't use his power as the Almighty God to step down off of the cross. Instead, he steadfastly pays for every last one of our sins. He takes away all of the guilt you and I carry along with us. And he says, it's finished. The payment is made, and he dies. So that you will never die. So that you as a child of God can now go through life 
confident of God's promises because he's kept the big one. We can look at people like Abraham and David and and Daniel, we can add to that list, who in their times of trouble turn to God and we see God do exactly what he promised. Deliver them. We can see how God has delivered us, not only from sin, but from the troubles and persecutions in this life. Which means the next question, at least in my mind, is, well, how in the world do I get a faith like Daniel? How do I get a steadfast faith that when faced with troubles in life and persecutions doesn't wilt, but instead is steadfast? I read an article recently about, of all things, British cycling. In 2003, British cycling was in a rather sorry state. In the, since 1908, the British riders had won a single gold medal in the Olympic Games. And in the 110-year existence of the Tour de France, the, the premier bike race in Europe, a British rider had never won. In fact, it was so bad that a very prominent European bike manufacturer would at times refuse to sell its bikes to British riders because it was afraid that having a Brit ride the bike would so tarnish its reputation that they said, you can't buy one. And so the the British national cycling team in 2003 hired a man by the name of, can't find his name, Dave Brailsford. His job was to turn this sinking ship around. And he came at it from a very unique approach. He looked at everything the British cycling team did, from how they rode their bike, the clothes that they wore, and all he was looking for in a whole wide variety of areas was 1% gain. Tiny, tiny marginal gains. But he figured if he had a whole bunch of different areas that improved by just a very small amount, the gain would be massive. He started in 2003. You might remember that in 2008, the Olympic Games were held in Beijing. British cycling dominated. They won an astounding 60% of the gold medals available. And four years later, in 2012, when the Games were in Britain, in London, the Brits raised the bar. They set nine Olympic records and seven world records. In 2012, a Briton by the name of Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France, followed by Chris Froome, who won the Tour de France in 2015, 16, 17, uh, and then in 2000, and also in 2013. In other words, all of a sudden, the British cycling team was on the top of the world, was considered one of the premier cycling teams, all because of very small, marginal, incremental gains consistently done over time. I think it might serve as a way for you and I to begin to look at our own spiritual life. 
I've discovered I have the tendency that if I'm going to change something, say, in my devotional life, I like big changes. I'm a, I've, I'll set up, I've got a devotion book, I'm going to read six chapters of the Bible every day, and then I'm going to read this commentary, and I've got this huge plan, and guess how long I do it? Yeah, week, ten days, and then parts start flying off of it, right? And, and pretty soon I'm, I'm right back to where I was. Maybe it would be better if I look for just a single percent improvement. What does one percent improvement in your spiritual life look like? Maybe it's looking at my worship life and saying, right now I attend maybe once a month. And what I'm going to do is set a goal of being here more than I'm not. And so I'm here too times a month with a goal of three or or every week. Maybe my 1% goal is looking and saying, I'm going to sacrifice five or ten minutes of sleep and I'm going to get up and I'm going to simply read the meditations devotion book, the devotion that's each day available each day in the book. And at the bottom there's a little scripture reading and and that's all I'm going to do. It's going to take me ten minutes. Maybe my 1% gain in my spiritual life is saying, I'm going to set aside an hour each week, join one of our small groups so that I have time together in God's word. Perhaps your 1% is saying, I'm going to spend 15 minutes with my child and go through an Our Savior's Kids lesson every week. Perhaps your 1% gain is simply, I'm going to sit down and open God's word and over the course of a year, read the Bible. I don't know what 1% in your spiritual life looks like. But I can guarantee it that much like a, very, a wide variety of very small 1% gains took British cycling from the laughing stock to, to the winning circle. Small, incremental gains that are consistently done in your spiritual life produce huge results just the same. Because God works through his word. And as he works through his word, your faith is strengthened and becomes more steadfast. Consistency over time in the word builds a strong, steadfast faith. A strong, steadfast faith doesn't come from big things, but small things done over and over and over again. Kind of like Daniel. Who even on the day a law was enacted that forbid him from praying to his God did the exact same thing he did every day. Three times a day he got down on his knees opened his window and talked to his God. And over 80 plus years of life, guess what that did to his faith? It enabled him to on a day when a law that forbade him from doing that, for Daniel not to even give it a second thought and demonstrate a strong, steadfast faith. Lord, 
Keep me like Daniel, huh? Lord, keep me steadfast in your word. Amen. And the peace of God, which goes beyond our understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We respond to God's word this morning by joining together in proclaiming